Father God, as we read this uh, letter, please help us to get a right picture of ourselves, of your world, and of our responsibilities. Amen. Well, Liz, who read, um, sometimes is on the West End stage, um, so it's brilliant to have her read. And actually, there's been a musical cabaret recently running with Eddie Redmayne, and it's been around this film here um, that was uh, uh, done in 1972. That one starred Liza Minnelli, it won eight Academy Awards, and it brings to life the story of Berlin in the 1930s, depicting on the one hand the uh, call to decadent pleasure that had gone out in the arts world, and the other hand the growing political force of the Nazi party as it came to power. And towards the end of the film, during a visit to the countryside, Michael York, who is playing a British language teacher, encounters this scene. So let's have a look at it now. So this is the 1930s Germany, and uh, here we are. The stag in the forest runs free. But gather together to greet the storm. Tomorrow belongs to me. The branch of the linden is leafy and green. The rhyme gives its good to the sea. But somewhere a glory of its unseen Tomorrow belongs to me The babe in his cradle is closing his eyes The blossom embraces the Oh, hear the bad to see. 
Powerful stuff, isn't it? And as you uh, watch it, of course, if you listen to the words, the words celebrate the wonder of creation. The sun on the meadow is summery warm. The stag in the forest runs free. The branch of the linden is leafy and green. The rind gives its gold to the sea. The babe in his cradle is closing his eyes. The blossom embraces the bee. And yet, and yet, what is the response to this amazing world that we're in? Well, you heard the chorus. Tomorrow belongs to me. And here, of course, is the horror that theologically in part propelled the Nazis into what they did. If tomorrow belongs to you, you can do whatever you like with it. Now, by contrast, as we take up the Bible today, and it was amazing how, on the whole, the German church capitulated in Nazi Germany, the book of Ecclesiastes would say to that young film, that young fool in the film we just saw, remember your creator in the days of your youth. So tomorrow does categorically not belong to me, it belongs to my creator because life is a gift, not a given. Again, historically, this was so important if Nazi Germany had understood this in the 1930s. And please take off your blinkers to that young man. It would say, in fact, just as much you are just as much a creature in God's world as the stag in the forest, the babe in the cradle, the bee in his blossom. Actually, as a human being, you are the pinnacle of creation. We heard that lovely voice. But you are a creature. It's the first couple of verses of the Bible. We are created. And the great call of James, chapter 4, verse 10, I don't know if you can look down, is humble yourselves, which means be happy to bow the knee to God. Unashamedly, we call people to do that here at All Souls. Now, it may be that this young man finds his heart beats, his muscles tense, and his pride rears up as he sings, Tomorrow Belongs to Me, despite being surrounded by the wonder of creation. And James tells us in response categorically, ladies and gentlemen, we are tenants, not owners, in God's world. I'm sorry to tell you that, but we are tenants. To use Jesus' words in Mark chapter 12, one of the Gospels, in a world we didn't create, in a world we have not earned, in a world we do not own. So again, a life is a gift, not a given. And the target in this passage here today before us, ladies and gentlemen, the target is presumption. That I can make plans without any reference to God and the God who made me. Presumption that we can do it all ourselves, that we're in control of our lives, that we have a divine right to live the life we want to live, and that we can determine the way in which our lives will go. Tomorrow belongs to me, tomorrow belongs to me. What presumption! In God's world, what arrogance. No, James 4 verse 10, no, humble yourselves. Be thrilled to bow the knee to God, your creator. So let's look at it together. I don't know what you'll make of it as we look down here. Thank you again if you're visiting. But verse 13, Now listen, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Well, this is a picture, a little little sketch, a pen portrait of the businessman who has got his uh, iPhone and uh, and he's he's, uh, going to plan. When, where, how long, and why? Can you see? It's all in the verse there. When, today or tomorrow? Where, this or that city? How long? A year. Why? To make money. And James sees him coming into church, this guy. And he sees how he's living, and he grabs him, and he says, let's have a coffee. Let's go and chat about this. 
uh, uh, look, we need to get under the bonnet and have a look at the perspective that you've got, that your presuppositions have got that make you believe that you can plan like this. Now, of course, it is right to plan. We need to make a living. Uh, we've got to be, uh, uh, it's godly to seek to provide for our loved ones. Uh, many in this church are doing that. We're not against planning. It's right to plan. It's a godly thing to do, particularly as we're trying to care for people. But, my friend, I, I sense a presumption in your tone, says James. So verse 14, he says, can we see as we look down? Why? You, you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life, verse 14? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it's the Lord's will, you will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast and brag. And James says, James says, it's not the planning that's wrong. Ladies and gentlemen, it is not the planning that's wrong. It's the fact that in our planning, we refuse to acknowledge the God who gives us each breath. And particularly, there are three things we refuse to acknowledge, and I lay them before you this morning. So the first is our um, ignorance, says James. Uh, you make these great plans, when, where, how long, why, but you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. Again, I say as creatures in God's world, there needs to be a humility in our planning, because the future and the length of our lives are not in our control. Take the blinkers off, he says. Um, see the world we're in. For any of us, for any of us, there could be a phone call that totally changes our life. It could come this afternoon. Um, so this Thursday, I am taking uh, that dear man's funeral. I was at school with him, and he died suddenly of a heart attack in Eastern Europe a month ago. And I'm taking my school friend's funeral on Thursday, and you know, his partner said to me, my whole life changed in five seconds. So I'd ask you to pray for that family who's been rent apart by this incredibly sudden loss. My whole life changed in five seconds. Well, I'll be thinking that on Thursday and cover your prayers. Although actually, maybe, you know, um, it can be amazing news that comes. You could have the most fantastic news. We don't know what will happen tomorrow. Uh, there was a Welsh preacher called Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, and he was on a train going from London to Cardiff, and he met a man on the train who looked a bit dishevelled, but he bought him a cup of tea, and they chatted for the journey, and then that man left him his house. He left him his house. Think about that the next time you're on a train from London to Cardiff, ladies and gentlemen. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. We don't know. And so in making plans, the call of James is for humility. We are creatures in God's world. In my morning time, if I'm someone who reads the Bible, I need to lay my plans and my diary before the Lord. I'm a creature in your world, God. I'm not in control. I don't want to be like the disgraced newspaper tycoon, Robert Maxwell, of whom his daughter-in-law said, all that happened to him came from hubris. He believed he could fly to the sun which include it, of course, looting the pension funds of his workers. Tell me, are, are these words, verse 14, this is the question today, thank you for coming. Are these words part of your philosophy of life? Can I ask, uh, as, as we look at verse 14, uh, uh, do we recognize why you don't even know what will happen tomorrow? We don't have any idea about tomorrow. We're, we're not in control. Uh, David Turner, who uh, was a church warden here for many years, used to like to say, you know the Jewish proverb, don't you? How do you make God laugh? Tell him your plans. Well, you know, there's something in that. 
We're creatures. Secondly, uh, we must recognize our transience. Verse 14, what is your life? Liz read this so well. You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Uh, A more accurate translation here is, what is the character of your life, ladies and gentlemen? How would you describe your life? Would you describe it as a building or a rock, uh, secure and strong? Trevor Pierce, who preached on this series before, he said, would you describe it as an oak tree? No, he says, it's not like that. He says, it's much more like a mist, like a puff of smoke. I can remember my first sermon here 29 years ago, as broad as day. I mean, I, it, I can't believe it's gone in a flash. So James says, actually, what you need to do is he says, you need to go into the kitchen and you need to watch the kettle boil as you make your cup of tea or coffee. And as you see the steam come out of the spout, remember yourself that that is the character and brevity of your life. We're like the steam that comes out. That's the brevity of life. So the Bible says our lives are like chaff that blows away. The Bible says that our lives are like water that you spill into the ground, gone. The Bible says our lives are like a dream. You wake up the next day, you go, oh, it's gone. The Bible says my life is like a sigh, it's gone. The Bible says we're flowers that flourish like a flower of the field. The wind blows and it's gone. It's all gone. And so understandably, the Bible says, teach us to number our days aright, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Do you want wisdom? See that you're like mist. Extraordinary, isn't it? Our life is transient, uh, says James. Uh, That's what it's like. It's that short. And our mortality, well, our mortality, we we, we find this so hard to acknowledge. But this is what uh, Billy Graham, the uh, 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 preacher, the American preacher said about life. He, He was asked, what has most surprised you about life? And he replied, it's brevity. It's brevity. You're like mist, you're a puff. Plan for the future, well, it's over so quickly. And therefore, you see, as I understand the transience of life, what I've got to understand thirdly here is our dependence. Can we see that for verse 15 as we look down? So striking. Instead, you ought to say, if it's the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. In the past, people often used the expression Deo Valente, and so they would write DV on letters or cards, and it became almost superstitious, a sort of religious touchword. It meant God willing will do this, or God willing will do that. And these days, we don't use that because it sounds superstitious or perhaps self-righteous, but I wonder if actually there's something important that we're missing, because Deo Valente, DV, actually had a humility to it. It was, a, a, it was just an acknowledgement. These words contain a fundamental truth, don't they? They tell us whatever we do, whatever we might do, we can only do it with the acquiescence of God. Our life is a gift from him. Our abilities are gifts from him. And, and, and if we make plans, says James, all the way through, we must accept that we're utterly dependent on God. Now, I just want to say a couple of things about that. The first is thankful people are happy people. I have had an incredibly happy 29 years, and it's been based on thanksgiving. I'm so grateful, because I just think the Lord has showered his kindness upon me with a a lovely church family who've been so kind. But thankfulness is a key to happiness. 
Uh, and, and at the heart of that, 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 the thanksgiving, actually, I want to say, and again, I don't know what you make of this, is the person of Jesus Christ. I don't know what you think of Jesus. A lot of people look at Jesus Christ and they think, do you know, Jesus Christ, it all started in Bethlehem. Categorically, ladies and gentlemen, it did not. The Bible says that actually right at the start of the Bible, Jesus was there at the creation of the world with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. We'd love to explain that to you more. But so the Bible says in terms of dependence, these words, all things have been created through him, that's Jesus, and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. I don't know how big Jesus is. When I came to see those words, my vision of Jesus got bigger and bigger and bigger, and my thankfulness and joy expanded. And yet... There are so many people today who think tomorrow belongs to me. I have a divine right to it. I know what's going to happen. I've got it all planned. It, it doesn't, uh, 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 but it doesn't belong to us. It belongs to God. It's entrusted to us out of his goodness and his mercy. And if you're visiting, thank you for coming. Please chat more about this. But James says we must recognize that we're dependent in everything we do, which, of course, leads to the question... Why don't more people understand this? Why don't they see it? And it's because so often presumption is built on materialism. You see, we know life is so short. We know plans are so hard to control. We know God creates the stag in the forest, the babe in the cradle, the bee in the blossom. But but in chapter 5, James shows us what people's presumption is built on, and it's materialism. Incredibly dangerous. So this is why people won't bow the knee. It's why people are so blind. You see, presumption means that that with my dear friends from school and university, they want to run their own lives and materialism deludes them into thinking they can do so. They go together, they're twins, these two. Uh, Presumption, I'm in control, materialism and my money proves it. Do you want to see how in control I am? Look at my bank account. I can create my own reality With that money, it cushions me against reality. Ladies and gentlemen, and it's not that money itself is wrong, but riches, we're told, can subvert the heart. Jesus says you can only have one master. And you know, London is full of people, and I've taken well over a 100 carol services at different law firms and other major firms. It's lovely of them to have me, but it's full of people who say to me at those services, do you know... When I was a teenager, I went to crusader camp. There's the crusader badge, but it's all gone now. They've been subverted. Jesus says in the parable of the rich fool, watch out. And literally the word there is, get out of the way of a truck coming at you. Jump out the way. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And there are three dangers here that we see. And I lay them before you, and they all surround the mindset of presumption. What do you think of them? The first danger is this. Can we see as we look down, hoarding. You have hoarded wealth in the last days, verse 3. So the biblical understanding is that any talent or gift is given in trust. So we're to be stewards. We're tenants, not owners. And money, like any other gift, is given to be used. Uh, That all God's gifts is used is basic to biblical understanding of life. Nothing is given to be kept. That's basic to the Bible. So John Calvin, the reformer on these verses, wrote these words. God has not appointed gold for rust, 
or garments for moth, but on the contrary, he has designed them as aids to human life. So they are to help us to live and help us to help others to live. So any gift we have is a gift from God and itself is a call to action. Not least because the word human comes from the Latin word humus of the ground. We are all incredibly fragile, particularly the very young and the very old. And the more self-centered and materialistic a society becomes, it is the very young and the very old who will suffer. So any gift I have is a call to action. Every scrap of blessing in scriptural thinking is to be used. God does not like waste in our lives. Yet these rich people have hoarded what should have been spent and used. Can I say not thrown away? Please note, they're not to throw it away, but use it. But they just build it up. It isn't used. It isn't shared. It makes them feel in control, independent, self-made. Tomorrow belongs to me. Look at my bank account. Look at the shares. Look what I've done. And then materialism can lead to exploitation. Can we see? Verse 4. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. Well, wealth is a form of power. And sadly, that power is often misused. In the days of James, poverty was such that if you worked a day, you had to be paid at the end of the day or you couldn't feed your family. So you get paid at the end of the day, you buy the food on the way home, you can feed the family. And James is saying, look, you rich people, you've got the money and yet you are hoarding it. And you even refuse to pay the laborers what they deserve at the end of a day's work. Watch out for exploiting people. Uh, See the wages you pay are proper. Pay your bills. Watch out. Make sure that their cash flow is okay. For so often the pursuit of wealth makes people think that they can make up their own rules, Robert Maxwell. And dealing with the little people with the workmen with integrity and honesty, well, that just gets left behind. Can you see why James intercepts this man on the way into church and says, we need to talk because some of your workers have come to me and told me what's going on. No wonder he wrote it. And thirdly, can we look down? Indulgence. James 5 verse 5, you've lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. So all these people around you are suffering, especially the very young and the very old. They don't have enough to feed their families because they, they, you won't pay them. But look at you. You've so much money, you can laze away your life in self-indulgence. That's what your plan is for tomorrow. Oh, I've got a great week set up and next month and the month after. And yet when God puts us here on earth, he puts us here to work. The Bible hates lazy self-indulgence. By the way, that does not mean paid work. Yes, these workers need paying. But so many in this church work and work and work without being paid. Thank you for that. But the Bible says six days shall you labor, one shall you rest. It's always been the first half of that that's been my problem. And the message here is that be very wary of riches because you can easily become a hoarder, an exploiter, and a luxury lover. As you say to yourself, tomorrow belongs to me. And my wealth, which feels so real and secure, becomes the vehicle which furnishes that delusion of control, that presumption. Well, so what? Well, in one of Paul's letters, 1 Timothy 6 verse 17, one of the um, things that can characterize the rich is arrogance. So they say, I don't care. I'm in control. You cannot touch me. 
And can I say in response to that, ladies and gentlemen, Christianity is not at heart a moral code or simply the most admirable way to live. It is not just a creed or an intellectual position to take up. It is not actually a therapy to a happier life. No, at heart you could say, ladies and gentlemen, Christianity is a prophecy. It tells us what's going to happen one day in the future. Can I lay that before you? Thank you for coming. I want to say that that's the story that we're in as we hold up the Bible. There is a prophecy here about what is going to happen. And it tells us that one day Christ is going to judge the world that he has made. He's made it. He's going to judge it. And how I treat you, how you treat me, how we treat the world matters to him. And can you see that in Christ's courtroom, we read here that the rich man is almost inevitably on his way to hell. Can you imagine what it's been like for 30 years living in this parish in the West End? It's been a great privilege, but believing that. And the pity that that engenders, the tears for wealthy people who think they're in such control with that presumption. It has been heart-rending, and one is utterly ignored. Walk past all souls, they don't need that. It's not for alpha males. (laughs) And James says, now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that's coming on you. And so we read, do we see as we look down here, uh, your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. Can I say this is a picture of hell, ladies and gentlemen? Uh, And the gold you didn't use that will be used in the courtroom against you, uh, and it will be part of the evidence that sends you to hell. Look at all this. It was all given to you on trust, and you didn't use it. So Deuteronomy 8 verses 15 and 16 says, You may say, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. Remember the Lord your God. It's he who gives you the ability to produce wealth, and then you ought to be generous. And if you're not, you've forgotten the fact that it's all a gift. And the ability to make that money is a gift. Gosh, these sort of verses make you unpopular, you know. Let me give you another one. Let's have a look down. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. So I haven't been paid, they shout out, and someone's listening. Who is the Lord? And he'll judge you on judgment day. Next verse. You found yourselves in the day of slaughter. So like cattle, you've fed yourselves and fed yourselves, but you have not seen the abattoir waiting for you. That's what we're we're being told here. And I think at this point in time, if you're listening, you're saying, well, Rico, I've come along this morning, but frankly, my question is this. How do you know this is true? How do you know it's true? You're saying these things. It feels like a real power statement. And I want to say, well, Jesus lived and taught. He had a band of followers He was tried in a Roman and Jewish court. He was sentenced to die. They strung him up on a cross. They put a spear through his side. They took him off the cross. They they laid him in a tomb. They certified him as dead. And three days later, he was walking around again. Now, if he got through death himself, he can get me through. And that has two applications. One is there is a great hope. When I go to the funeral on Thursday, I will talk about... The fact that Jesus got through death so we can get through death. 
As my mother died in Basingstoke Hospital in 2011, I said goodbye, I love you, and then I said I'll see you again, and that is all because of Jesus. If he got through death, the coffin is not exitless. It's a great hope, what a story. Tomorrow belongs to him, he's risen from the dead. But also, ladies and gentlemen, we have to tell you, otherwise we are withholding truth from you, that the resurrection also speaks of a judgment. For God has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he's appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone, that is everyone in the world, by raising him from the dead. So the risen Christ proves to me that I will be raised and I will be judged. What do you make of that? That past certainty gives the future hope. Ladies and gentlemen, can I lay the resurrection before you? It is the proof that we live in a just world and that God will call each one of us to account for the resources we've had. Well, I must close. What a passage. But perhaps as you listen now, you're going, oh my goodness, how have I lived? What have I done? What have I done with years and years of the gifts that I now see God has given me, that were given me as part of stewardship, when actually I've been a hoarder and a luxury lover? Can I tell you, if you're feeling that, then you are at one with most of us in the church. And the solution is not in what you can do. The solution is in what Christ has done. Uh, My mother gave me this statue. It's Jesus on the cross. It has been on my desk for 30 years. And Jesus says, I go to the cross to die so that you can be forgiven. I'm paying in death and blood. So he lived a perfect life. Life. God loved the world and he sent Jesus to die. But he died in our place. It's not just a Galilean carpenter dying. And he brought us forgiveness in death and blood. He paid for it. And therefore, there is only one way to hell, ladies and gentlemen, today. There's only one way. You have to trample over the cross of Jesus. He blocks the way to hell. He says, do not go there. I'm blocking the way. And so we just have to say, Lord Jesus, I'm so sorry. I've been a hoarder. I've been a luxury lover. Please forgiveness, uh, forgive me. And then we trust him and we turn around and we take our Bibles and we take them very seriously, trusting him to know what's best. So I don't know where that leaves you. Thank you for coming today. But here are some questions. Summer questions. Thank you for coming. Do you think life is a gift or a given? Does God have any place in your plans? Do you think a judgment day is coming? What about the resurrection? And do you think Jesus died so that you can be forgiven?